the harshest of operating conditions. Large-scale investment, planning, and commitment places the offshore sector in a league all on its own, where the stories of people aren't found anywhere else. From safety to operations to new technology, we look to break down this often mystified industry and shed light into the unknown. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast with your host, Andy Lash. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast. We have a very interesting topic today. Our guest is Joe Gang, author of Rethinking Hand Safety Myths, Truths, and Proven Practices. We are here. We're going to learn a lot about hand safety and try to make some waves in the oil and gas industry. Joe? Thanks for your time. Pleasure to be here, Andy. Awesome. Well, I know we talked a little bit before. You're up in Canada, out on the eastern side of the state. How's the weather up there today? It's a little below freezing, and we've got about three inches of freshness. It's kind of beautiful February day. Nice. Very nice. Yeah. And I'm in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and we got a nice winter storm last week, but it's all melted off, and now it's just windy, like it always is in Oklahoma. (laughs) It's always windy. Well, Joe, thank you for your time. Like I said, we're going to learn a lot about your recent release book and a little bit about your company, Superior Glove. I do want to say for everybody listening, the show is brought to you by Tidewater. Tidewater owns and operates the largest fleet of offshore support vessels in the industry. With over 60 years of experience supporting offshore energy exploration and production activities worldwide, If you're interested in support for your maritime operation, you can learn more about Tidewater through their website at www.tdw.com. Joe, why don't we start with just a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got where you are today? Sure. Yeah. So I was born and raised in the glove industry. My dad, he bought this company in the early 60s and kind of grew it from there. And so even from an early age, I was in here working and, and that kind of thing and kind of learned about gloves and uh, glove industry from you know, just a, just a really early age. And then after university, I came back and started working in the business. And now my, my brother and I run the company. And so we sell industrial work gloves to oil and gas companies, construction companies. Things like that. Awesome. So when you had to do yard work as a kid, what kind of gloves did you get to wear that day? <laughs> brand new ones every week? or Yeah, there's a pretty broad selection. Although there's often times where you like look around the house and there's no gloves. So it's kind of like the saying with the shoekeeper or like the cobbler's kids have no shoes. Like it was often <laughs> the case of walking to school with no gloves, that kind of thing. <laughs> right on. What did you go to university for? I took a chemistry degree. Okay, so kind of in a different direction and then... Your dad brought you back back under his wing, if you will? Yeah, it was actually under his direction that, that uh, I took a chemistry degree because there's quite a bit of chemistry involved in, in making leather and glove coatings and things like that. And, and he said, more or less, you can learn business on your own or I can teach you. You're not going to learn chemistry on your own, so why don't you take that? And so I went in that direction. And, and like, frankly, I don't use it very often, but it was still a good experience. Mainly what I think I learned is how to learn at university, which I guess most people would say. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Now that you state it that way, absolutely. And I think that's what a lot of people think about gloves. We just think of, we just think of old leather work gloves and them being pretty simple or pretty straightforward. But I know anybody that spent, especially somebody that spent time in the oil and gas industry, we've all seen the myriad of gloves. You know, from the bright orange impact gloves and the to leather gloves to just endless different options out there. It's got to be a daunting task to kind of keep up with all those. Yeah, for sure. Needs and. Yeah. You know, when we talk to people, like if I just meet people at a party or talking to a stranger kind of thing, and then 
like I get talking about our business and they sit like they sometimes they ask how many gloves do you guys make and I say well we've got about a thousand different kinds and they're like really like they are just shocked by that and that's really because so many companies have different jobs so that that's why we have a lot of different gloves like people would think oh yeah I have five different kinds of gloves and that should cover everything <laughs> but that it's really just a, a wide array just because somebody that's drilling or somebody that's working in a refinery they're going to need a different glove because their, their hazards are, are are different yeah absolutely and you're with superior glove correct yep so you guys distribute globally or where could somebody find your gloves if they listen to yeah this? pretty much globally i mean the vast majority of our business is in canada and the, the u.s and, and we sell through companies like Rager, or fast small ballot and that does awesome so do all this we'll if anybody's interested, they know where to get a hold of your products. So that's great. Joe, you recently authored a book, Rethinking Hand Safety, Myths, Truths, and Proven Practices. What prompted you to author that book? It was really kind of the realization that uh, some of our customers, they were having hand injuries and we were providing them with the best possible gloves that we could. And they still continue to have hand injuries. And so we just sort of came to the realization that gloves can't solve all the problems when it, when it comes to reducing injuries. And we couldn't really help our customers any more than that. So we decided at that point, we need to dig in to do some research. And then we thought writing a book would be a good way to go about, I mean, if we're gonna write a book on it, then we've gotta learn and we've gotta uh, really dig in. And so that's kind of how it came about, just a desire to have a better understanding how to help our, our customers kind of eliminate those injuries. So you grew up in the glove industry. I'm sure you went into that research with maybe some preconceived notions. What was the biggest surprise through that, you know, the authoring process that came out of it for you personally? Yeah, there was a lot of surprises, really. We didn't really have that many preconceived notions in that everything we thought for reducing pain injuries, we just thought about gloves all the time. So it was like, if you've got this problem, we can fix it with a glove. And we didn't really know anything else. <laughs> We'd observe companies, and we've gone into a lot of companies, and you can kind of tell that they have a safe environment and they're doing things right. But we didn't know exactly what those companies were doing. But then when we kind of, we took the opportunity to, to talk to them, to interview them, to dig in deep, then we learned a lot more. So yeah, there, there really just were so many surprises, but I'll, I'll share just a couple of tidbits. So there was an oil and gas company in Alberta, they were drilling in Western Canada, and they had a unique take on reducing injuries. So what they had done is they went to all their employees and said, we're going to give you a pair of pink work gloves. And whenever you see one of your coworkers doing something unsafe with their hands, we want you to go up to them and tell them that they're wearing the pink gloves for the day. And then that company was going to donate $5 to breast cancer research for every pink glove that was handed out. And basically what they had done effectively was make, instead of having one safety manager, every employee was now the safety manager and looking out for their coworkers' well-being. And it had a huge positive impact. And the way it was done, I mean, it was done in the spirit of good fun and camaraderie. It wasn't just like, oh, this jerk is on my back and trying to to bug me by making me wear the pink gloves. They did it in the right spirit. And then I think their hand injuries dropped about 30%. So like huge drop in hand injuries. And that was sustained over after the program was even ended. So it was a really effective way of harnessing the power of peer pressure, essentially, to, to make a workplace safer. Yeah, no, that's an awesome story. That's real fun. Yeah, so we saw workplaces that did that kind of really effectively. And, and really, it was a lot of like talking to workers, finding out what the issues were, and then getting them involved in the process rather than, oh, there's a safety manager and he's going to nag me all day long. The former is a lot more effective when you get everybody involved. Another interesting or unique approach that we came across was from a professor at the University of Colorado, and he worked with ConocoPhillips. 
on a hand injury reduction campaign. And they did kind of a lot of background research. And the premise that they started with was what changes people's behavior is often having had an accident or an injury that will make you change your behavior so that or witnessing somebody have an accident or an injury. And so they don't want to injure all the employees like that. That wasn't a good approach. But what they did was then they mocked up the most common hand injury. So they found out, okay, this is what generally happens in terms of a hand injury. And then they went further. They did it on injuries overall. And so like one of the injuries was a, a pipe drop dropping on the back of your hand, which is what happens a lot in certain oil and gas applications. And so they made a very realistic hand mannequin. And then they dropped the pipeline in front of everybody just to say, hey, this is a, a common thing that happens in your workplace. And this is what, what it's going to look like. And we blessed it in and everything. They, they did just such a phenomenal job with the, the mock-up. And then they kind of went into the next step of, okay, here's how you prevent that from happening. And then they did it with all kinds of other things. Like there was one common injury they're having is when they're digging trenches. Sometimes a trench would collapse on a person, they get buried. And so what they did is they got these similar to like a blood pressure cuff, but it was for your whole chest. And then they put it on your chest and then they pump it up and say, okay, now you're under a foot of dirt. Now you're under three feet of earth. Now you're under five feet of earth. And you could feel that actual pressure. And it's really kind of this awful experience that you go through. And that was a highly effective campaign of instead of kind of here's a PowerPoint about reducing injuries, here you're now going to experience those injuries firsthand. And then this is what you can do about them. So it made much more, brought it home much more, and it was a very effective kind of campaign. Absolutely. I agree with that. And I try to I actually try to find very similar training methods for my day job. But for what I do with transportation and semi trucks, it's kind of hard to mock up or simulate any of the kind of a major risks that we can go through. But absolutely, that sends the message home better than anything. I also quite often try to think and tell everybody, you know, and ask the question, well, how do you know if somebody's taking safety seriously? And it's quite often if they're using their workplace safety training outside of work, right? Like if they actually, and they hear, oh, I could get my hands hurt, and they learn about it at work from a pipe drop, well, do they wear gloves when they're mowing their lawn or cutting their hedges or, you know, all the other things that should still be using the same safety training, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's very true. I'm like, how often at home do you kind of cut corners when it's coming to say safety, right? I like it. I think we all do it, but the less you do that, the more you incorporate safety, the, the safer you're going to be. Safer you're going to be yeah, and the more often that you take a shortcut and nothing bad happens, kind of inverse of, of the examples you were just given, right? The more often nothing bad happens, the more accustomed you are to that being the end result and you normalize the risk. And now all of a sudden you're like, ah, I didn't use them at home. Now I don't, I don't need them at work. And then you see those trends come back up where you're seeing. Yeah, Injuries. that's right. You can you can do this kind of unsafe behavior many nine times, but it's the hundredth time, and then that gets you, and then that's when you maybe lose fingers. Absolutely. Well, gloves seem pretty. Str- I mean, if I'm just thinking real high, I can kind of think about some of the things just myself why I, I don't wear gloves sometimes when I should, and think through that. But gloves seem pretty straightforward for a lot of things. You know, put them on, wear them, and wear the right glove is probably a good part part of that. But what are some of the big reasons why? People aren't wearing their gloves or aren't wearing the right gloves. So the reasons people don't wear gloves, uh, there's studies on this, and it's typically because they're uncomfortable. That's the number one reason. So either the gloves are kind of too hot or too bulky. In addition to that is that you can't properly do your job with gloves on. I was just talking to somebody in the construction industry, 
he was saying like he is in the catch 22 where he's required to wear gloves but there's absolutely no way that he can do a good part of the job where they're required to handle some small screws kind of thing with the gloves that are provided and so to actually get the job done they have to violate the safety mandate they just hope they don't get caught by the safety manager while they're doing that and then that's just part of their life unfortunately so if the gloves chosen which we do see often the gloves are chosen and then they don't give enough forethought to how comfortable they need to be and the job that's required to, to be done with them then what happens is people take them off they they put them in their back pocket or put them down and they forget to put them back on and then that's when injuries happen so 70 percent of hand injuries in the workplace are when people are not wearing gloves and yeah that's really the result of the wrong glove being chosen and in some cases the wrong glove not being available like i mean there's some jobs where you're not going to have a really fine feeling glove if you're handling something that's a thousand degrees fahrenheit or something like that but for the most part it's poor glove choice and then like what we've kind of I'd add in addition that is often when we go into workplaces, we see the gloves chosen where you can tell that they haven't been reviewed in a long time, so maybe five years or 10 years, because a lot of technology has come out. It's like, hey, we're using that glove, and that, that was the glove that your, your granddaddy probably used on the job as well. But there's a lot better products that allow you to feel a lot better and then also have higher levels of protection, just because material science is getting better and better. So we're able to make thinner and thinner gloves that allow you to do jobs with finer dexterity. Okay. What is that review process like? Kind of at a high level. I'm sure it's job specific a great deal. but Yeah, it's, a, it's job specific. But in general, what we see as best practice is what will happen is a safety manager will go and they'll talk to somebody doing a job. Like best practice would be to get a glove manufacturer involved. And they would talk amongst the three themselves, the person doing the job, the safety manager, the glove manufacturer, and understand the risks and the requirements of the job. And then they would select maybe two to three gloves to try out. And then you would try them among a few people, like maybe five or 10 people. And then you get their feedback and then determine which glove is the most suitable for the job. And that's typically like what we'll do when we go into a workplace. So we'll, based on our experience, we'll recommend a glove. And then sometimes it comes back and people say, these gloves just don't work. And then we go through it again. So we just uh, keep iterating until we get a glove that everybody's really happy with. And then again, we'll err on the side of comfort. So we want something that, of course, protects you sufficiently, but without overdoing it. Because we often see safety managers do that and saying, okay, well, I need a glove that will stop a bullet or be indestructible. And that is not necessary. One, it's overly costly. But then the even worse than that is that they're typically too bulky or too heavy. So you really, given the choice of something that overprotects or something that protects adequately and is much more comfortable, you go on the side of comfort because that's what's going to be more. Okay. Let's maybe take an example here. I'm thinking, you know, a lot of our audience is maybe offshore, offshore oil and gas, you know, especially Tidewater. Let's just look at the show sponsor. They've got a lot of employees, you know, working on deckhands, handling rope and chain. They're in an ocean atmosphere, so it's wet. What are some of the things that somebody in that kind of environment should be looking for specifically in a glove? Sure. Yeah. yeah I, love, I love talking glove details. So what we do with oil and gas companies and the related jobs as well is typically backhand impacts are one of the most common and also most severe. So you're getting like a pipe on the back of the hand, a chain on the back of the hand, that, that kind of thing. So this is general speaking, like you might be able to go into each individual function separately and say, okay, you kind of look at the injuries that have happened over time and then make more specific recommendations, but I'm doing just kind of a broad sweep here for oil and gas. 
So backhand knocks. And so in the last five years or so, gloves have improved dramatically here. That's because glove companies have taken a page from sporting uh, glove companies like Fox Racing and things like that, like motocross gloves. And so a lot of gloves now have backhand bumpers and to reduce the severity of those knocks. If you're getting hit, then there's a plastic bumper essentially on the back of your hand that, that uh, reduces that impact. And then even more specifically, like kind of getting in the weeds here, just recently, there's a standard, a test standard released by, by Nancy for impact. And so it rates the gloves, which is really helpful for somebody that's trying to choose. So you have a one, two, three rating, high, three being the highest for reduction of impact. So you can kind of, depending on how many backhand injuries you're having, you choose a different level. So that's where, if I were a safety manager at one of those companies, that's where I'd start, is looking at those backhand injuries and then looking at gloves to prevent that. Then the next step that you'd want to look at is probably cuts. There's just so many cut injuries that happen in oil and gas and just in workplace in general, whether you're using a box cut or item, there's all, all kinds of lacerations that happen. And then, so you might want to add like a cut resistant lining to the glove. So whether it's Kevlar or something else. And the combination of those two things can be very effective from just a glove standpoint at, at reducing those injuries. And then lastly, is in, maybe in some circumstances, you might want to look at something that's flame retardant if there's like a flash fire hazard or something. So that I would kind of, if you get a glove that combines all those three, then you're probably in a good position. But I would say, though, that even before, we sometimes see safety managers do this, even though they've been trained not to, and it's just human nature, is that before you look for a glove to solve the problem, you kind of want to look elsewhere. So there's the hierarchy of safety controls where you're trying to eliminate hazards or put guards in place. Like All those things are more effective, and gloves and personal protective equipment are really the last line of defense. So let's kind of start with those other things and add gloves last. So one story I give just to illustrate that is we had one of our sales guys, and he was at a pulp and paper mill, and they have this job where they have these huge, maybe 50-pound razor-sharp blades that they use for cutting large rolls of paper. And this guy had, had to sharpen the blade, so he took it off, and he was walking across the plant floor, and then he slipped, and the blade cut him in the stomach, and he had to have an enormous number of stitches. He had this huge laceration on his stomach. So he brought in our sales guy, He's saying, okay, I need a cut-resistant jacket and cut-resistant pants and super cut-resistant gloves. And our sales guy looked at him and was like, why is he walking across the plant floor with a 50-pound blade in his hand? Why don't you build a plywood box? And your risk is going to be almost completely eliminated by just doing that one thing, and it's going to cost you $30. And if you buy all this other stuff, it's going to be $100,000 a year or something like that. And not to say that you shouldn't have the personal protective equipment, but start with the, the wooden box to try to keep people safer rather than, than go straight to gloves, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's what I was thinking as you were telling the story. Like, obviously, I was thinking something bad was going to happen when you said a big blade. But I'm like, why is he walking with it? Why, why don't they have like a cart or something to like put it on so it's stable and, you know, yeah. So that's good on your sales staff there for recommend really looking at the problem the right way. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes it takes like an outside eye, right, that if you're you're in that environment all the time, and then you just accustom the way it's done. And then someone gets a fresh eye. And sometimes that can be just the employee doing the job itself themselves, asking for their opinion or, you know what I mean? The more opinions you have, then sometimes you get those outside-the-box ideas that lead to those aha moments that really make things much, much safer. Absolutely. How about, I mean, we've talked about the big ones for oil and gas and, and I think, like you said, backhand impacts and lacerations. What's maybe a surprising industry where 
the general user wouldn't think that gloves would be needed or or ever even used for that matter. That is a good one. I was kind of thinking maybe some type of inspection work where you have like the white linen gloves and yeah, there's all kinds of weird applications. Like, I mean, for me, it maybe doesn't seem that weird because in the business so long. Well, like electronics, then you have to have, we put in antiseptic yarns because if you have a shock, it'll destroy a circuit board, something like that. There's all these kind of weird requirements for each industry. So that's one where the gloves are very specialized. And then in that environment, the gloves obviously have to be super clean. If you have like a little dust particle or something, it can really mess something up. Another one like that is painting cars. So painting cars, the gloves have to be very thoroughly clean because if you get a little dust particle and then you paint like a, a truck <laughs> and then the paint job is ruined, they're, the manufacturer is not at all happy <laughs> to repaint a truck. So those have, that has to be very particular. And even uh, come to think of it is even more particular than that is plane manufacturing. So if you're manufacturing a plane like Boeing or somebody like that, the gloves have to be highly, very clean. And also they can't contain silicone, which is, is a lubricant very frequently used in the manufacture of a lot of stuff. So we have to be very vigilant to make sure something doesn't contain silicone because you don't want to mess up the paint job of a 747. <laughs> that can be a really big problem. Yeah, I wouldn't want that problem on my hands. So is something like that, is that something where it's like almost like an individually packaged self, you know, a single use type of glove or are these something that can be used through multiple jobs? I mean, how do you come at that? Yeah, it depends on the application. If it's like anything to do with paint, they will be, what we actually have is we have a clean room where someone has to go in and they have to be wearing a bun suit. The air is filtered, the water is specially filtered and they'll be, be monitored and then individually packaged for, for that use. So it's almost like a surgical glove, that kind of thing, you know, that it will have a very clean environment and ingredients are highly controlled as well. Well, that's real interesting. It's surprising to me. Like you said, you're living in it every day, so it's not so surprising, but I would have never thought about the electronics industry or, or some of those paint applications needing such specific <laughs> yeah. hand protection or gloves, you know? Yeah, yeah we've had heard stories. So it hasn't happened to us. Fortunately, we've had competitors where they've gotten bills from, say, Ford or something like that. And be like, here's $100,000 for the screw-ups and the paint jobs of, I don't know, 20 cars or something like that, so something you really want to be very careful of. Yeah, no, that's not good. All right. Well, Joe, what do you tell people when they're entering your industry for the first time? Is there something you tell new hires or people that you bring on to Superior Glove that you want them to to understand from day one? Yeah, I guess the main thing is that we're in the business of, of reducing hand injuries. So Rather than thinking of ourselves as a glove company, we want to be thinking of how do we help those companies reduce hand injuries? Because hand injuries are the number one preventable workplace injury. So back is actually the number one injury that happens in the workplace. But sometimes back injuries, you could be sitting at your desk and turn the wrong way and you get a back injury. Whereas hand injuries typically, like if you had the right glove or the machine was properly guarded, those injuries would not have happened at all. So they're the number one injury, but they're often not considered a high priority. So often if you're going on a construction site, you'll see you have to be wearing your steel toe boots, your hard hat, safety glasses, but not that often let's say you should be wearing gloves, which is really an issue. And and that's the kind of mindset we're trying to change is that people should not be getting cut at work. And if they're following these best practices, those cuts will be, or the the injuries will be, hand injuries will be eliminated or dramatically, at the minimum, dramatically reduced. What about like chemical exposures? And my day job, we have truck drivers that are loading and unloading crude oil all day. So they're touching crude oil and solvents and different products. 
I still see them sometimes that are maybe not wanting to wear their gloves when they should or different things like that. Do you see? Yeah, that's a really unfortunate one because th- those are the kinds of things where, I mean, if you're getting hit with a pipe on the back of your hand, you're going to feel it immediately. If you're getting a bit of solvent on your hand, that you're not going to feel immediately, but it's the kind of thing that builds up over time. Like it could be like smoking every day, right? In the end, you might get very sick because you absorbed so much of a toxic solvent into your system. But I mean, there's gloves there. If they're for whatever chemical, there's gloves that have been developed to prevent that from getting on your hands. But that is one we see really too often where certain jobs where people will just tolerate getting toxic chemicals on their hand and not think anything of it. So that's kind of a challenge that we're trying to address is make more comfortable gloves that protect against those things because it's just really just too often the worst place people are getting to like soaking their hands in toxic chemicals for hours a day and it's it shouldn't be happening. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the, the exact same message that I try to give to you know my employees when I do see them. And, you know, they're like, ah, oh, it's just, you know, it's fine. I'll just wipe it off. And I'm like, you're not wiping it off. You know, like they look clean, but it's causing damage. Yeah, we have an interesting uh, demo that, that illustrates that. This is one of our sales people came up with this and it was really such a great idea. But in those applications, what he does, he'll, he'll do a training and he crushes up some garlic cloves. He says, hold this in your hand and close your hand. And then he'll go on with the training about five minutes later. He's like, do you taste anything? And he said, they'll be like, yeah, I taste garlic. And he said, that's because it's seeping in your system and going all through your system. So that's kind of an eye-opening thing for them, that, that garlic cloves are getting into their system to the point that they can taste garlic. Then how much more is, say, toluene or some gasoline or something like that? You know, like it gets in your system in your, your through your pores and it's not something you want to understand. Absolutely. That's a great practice right there. I'm going to have to try that out and <laughs> put that <laughs> yeah. to use. The other thing in the, in the book that we kind of uncovered, that's just a challenge for safety managers is overcoming the biases. So the example that you give there of people soaking their hands in chemicals, and it's the same with, with say, smoking, is that you, you sort of justify it in your mind, oh, that's not going to happen to me. I mean, that happened to that guy, but not to me. Or conversely, that guy has done it for 50 years and he's still fine. Or my, my granddaddy smoked until he was 100. It's like, yeah, okay, maybe he was one in 100 people, but studies show conclusively that it's bad for you. So you shouldn't be taking that risk or, or think that you're that one in 100, right? Oh, absolutely. Risk normalization is a big problem. Yep. Yeah, we all do it and we think we can all get away with it. We're the, that one person that is the exception to the rule. I think we've touched on a lot of myths and and just different things, but are there any other myths or popular myths or misunderstandings that you're kind of combating day in and day out with just kind of your, your customer base? Yeah. The number one thing that we came across the research in the book was the idea that accidents happen because people are stupid. So that is a common, like, it's not that voice that directly, but sometimes safety managers will just say that, that, oh yeah, that guy was a dummy or sometimes you'll see it in signs around the workplace. Like, don't use this machine if you're an idiot kind of thing. Like they'll just be that little kind of derogatory jab. And that is what you see in workplaces that are generally not that safe. So the attitude is people are kind of stupid. They're going to do dumb things and you just can't help it. And so there's going to be accidents. But what the more successful workplaces, they would, they take a step back. So instead of someone might do something that is apparently quite stupid from an outside point of view, but then when you talk to that person and you kind of, peel back the layers of the onion and say, well, why did you do that? And then when you get down to it, maybe they're under production pressure and so they're rushed. Or they were taught by somebody that had no safety training and they got no safety training themselves. 
So that's how they thought it was the right way to do the job. So there's typically logical reasons or seeming fairly logical reasons if you get into the side of the shoes of that person that, that did that thing. So if you're able to do that, then workplaces become much more safer instead of having the attitude of just don't be an idiot and nobody's safe. Yeah, that's really an uplifting, positive workplace message, right? Don't be an idiot. That's your safety tip for the day. <laughs> yeah, or just use your head or something yeah. like that. And that but that's not just sends a message of a pick ball. What do you think I'm doing normally? Absolutely, absolutely. Joe, we've learned a lot. It's been a very interesting and fun conversation with you today. Is there anything that you want to get out that we haven't touched on yet? I guess the only thing is just the idea that safety, it's not kind of a one-time thing, that it's it takes little incremental things. So it can be safety, having a safe work environment is 100 things added together. And so for a safety manager, it can be kind of a lonely road and sometimes discouraging when things don't work quickly. But just that idea that it's a, a long road to home and that those all those little things and those small wins add up over time. Absolutely. Yeah. I have a quote recently that it's really stood out to me, which is success is doing something consistently what others do only occasionally. Right. So if that safety manager is consistent and reliably sticking to the message, they're going to get there through that lonely island like you just mentioned. Yeah. Joe, your book is out. How long has it been out for? It's been about three weeks. Okay. And that is Rethinking Hand Safety, Myths, Truths, and Proven Practices. I know I found it on Amazon. No problem. Just typed it up and it was available there. And Joe, what's your actual position with Superior Glove? Vice President of Superior Glove. And how can, if anybody wants to get a hold of you or wants to learn more about Superior Glove products, what's the best way to do that? You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or my email address is joe, J-O-E, at superiorglove.com. And our website is superiorglove.com. Awesome. Simple, straightforward, easy to get to. Well, Joe, I really appreciate it. It's been a wonderful discussion. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, wonderful, wonderful. To everybody listening, if you enjoyed the show, please, we would greatly appreciate any comments or reviews that you could leave us on iTunes or anywhere that you consume this material. It truly is the best way to support the show and get us out to some other listeners. And we need the feedback. So I, the show gets better with the more comments and, and reviews that we get. We'll put that into practice. Thank you again, Joe, for your time and to the listeners. And all right. We'll have a good week, and we'll see you on the next one. Here are events on deck. Hey, everybody. Alex here with the events on deck for February. We do not have any OGGN happy hours in February, but we do have an exciting event coming up in Pittsburgh. This will be our first happy hour there in March, and it will be taking place on March 25th. The location is to be determined, so be sure to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn or Twitter to keep up with uh, those announcements and to purchase tickets. The Houston API Luncheon will be on February 11th. This will be a networking event with top oil and gas business leaders. And they promise that you'll be learning something really cool. So check it out and sign up for that event. The Wildcatters Ball will be on February 7th in Houston. This ball is the primary oil and natural gas industry fundraising event for the IPAA Educational Foundation. Proceeds go toward funding the foundation's energy education programs. The API Energy Houston Three Gun Chapter will be on March 20th in Houston. 
This event fills up really quickly, so make sure to get your team entered. The best way to do so is to fax or email the form with at least a captain's name as soon as possible. If you need to wait for a check, just notate that on the bottom of the form and send it on. We will be sending Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister to Scotland, to Aberdeen, Scotland, on March 5th for DokaruCon, which is the first event of its kind. It is a conference for creating high-impact sales in energy. And Mark and Patrick will be hosting a panel and recording a live podcast. If you're interested in attending this event, visit DokaruCon.Dokaru.com. And that is D-O-Q-A-R-U. C-O-N. That's all for this month. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to check again next month for more updates on OGGN events. Tune in next week for another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasoffshore.com.